the month of December, we will be in the book of Ruth, um, which um, I don't know how you feel about Ruth. I think the general thing I get from people most of the time is that we love Ruth. In fact, someone asked me what was the next series we were going to be studying, and I said Ruth, and they're like, oh, good. And they said, what are you doing after that? I said, I'm thinking about doing some, some out of Ecclesiastes. And they're like, oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, but, uh, but Ruth is a great book. Um, if you spent much time in it, you know that, uh, that it's just really engaging. It's a great, uh, great story, well to- told, um, with characters that are relatable um, that we see ourselves in, or we can see ourselves in, um, many ups and downs, uh, tragedy and triumph in the story, um, beautiful, uplifting ending to the whole thing, which is always good, right? Um, and, uh, and it's not just loved by us, it's been loved throughout time. The Jewish people loved the book of Ruth. In fact, every year um, at what they called the, the Feast of Shavuot, which, which we call the, the, the Feast of Pentecost, um, was they read this in the synagogues um, because it was, um, it was the time of harvest, it was a celebration of harvest, uh, and Ruth kind of has a harvesty theme. Um, so it was, it was red, and they, they loved it too. Um, for me, I love it for the story, but I also really love it for the demonstration of God's providence that's all throughout it. There are indications all throughout the text of what God is doing in this story, um, but not just the, the providence God shows within these four chapters in Scripture, but also how those four chapters fit into a broader masterpiece of history that God was putting together. Um, And so we're going to spend some time talking about some of those things, um, especially as we get toward the end uh, of this book. Um, My encouragement to us, and and I don't even know how we do this, so I'm just going to encourage it and, and leave it to you guys, is to try to engage with this story like it was the first time you ever heard it. Because we've heard it so many times that I think we go, hey, I know what's coming. I, I know what's next. I know what's going to happen. And, and when we do that, it, 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 I think it sucks something away from what the story is. The story is meant to, to be revealed um, over time for us, for us to feel the tension when, when there's difficult times and, and things going on that, might, that, that seek to maybe destroy the, the story and seem like things aren't going in a good direction, we sh- our, sh- our heart should be drawn to that drama in that moment. Um, and so I've been praying this for us, um, that we would uh, kind of see it new- with new eyes um, and be able to uh, embrace the story it tells and the God who is telling that story and who shaped that story. So let me pray for us as we get into this. Lord, um, we are very thankful for the book of Ruth uh, and what... Uh, a joyous little four-chapter book it is. Um, I pray as we spend time in this this morning, I I pray the prayer I just expressed, that we would see it with new eyes, that you would give us um, a a, a new view on it, a new look on it, Uh, not because we haven't seen it before, but because we want to understand the story the way it was meant to be told. Uh, with all the drama and the, and the difficulty and, and, and all of the ways that you satisfy those things and you satisfy those things within that story and you satisfy those things in our own stories. Um, and so help us to see this uh, this morning with, uh, 
with new eyes um, and help me just to be clear about uh, what, what the, the text is and not make too much hay out of small things, but really make it about what uh, you originally intended us to, to want to understand from it. Uh, may you just be glorified in your name. Amen. This is how it starts. Oh, by the way, before we click on to the next thing there, um, this is not a game board. Everybody who's seen this, they're like, oh, it's a game. It's not meant to be a game board. It's meant to be like steps in the story, okay? That's what's on your handout. Uh, and in fact, if you save these handouts, I'm actually going to make it in a way that you could actually lay them next to each other, and they'll like link to one another. It'll be cool. You can put it up on your wall or something. Yeah. Um, so here we go. Uh, beginning of Ruth. Um, you know, we never have technical issues around here, right? <laughs> My clicker uh, died this morning, so I'm, I'm without clicker. Um, this is how it starts. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in, in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The narrator here starts with setting up the scene that this is in the time of the judges, now, the, his original readers would have instantly known what that mean, meant, and it meant bad news. Because for a couple of hundred years, this was like the dark time of Israel. If there were dark ages in the life of Israel, this was the dark ages. It was really, really, really bad. It started at the end of, the, uh, at the end of Joshua's life, when Joshua died, all the way until the, they coronate King Saul. That there is this time of just anarchy and death and destruction. Uh, there was blood everywhere in Israel at this time. It was bad. It was not good. Um, in fact, what's repeated in Judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Just think about that. That's like a description of anarchy, right? Like, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. You're going to do what you want to do. So if that means I kill you, then I kill you. It's crazy. And there's a reason why it got so bad, um, is that God had told them to drive the Israelites, Israelites, the Canaanites out completely. He had told the Israelites, go in and drive them out, destroy them all, and you've got to do this. It's important, or you will be drawn away by them. Well, let's look at it here. One more click there. Judges 1.28 says this, it came about when Israel became strong, so they, they felt pretty good about themselves, hey, we're doing good, that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, and they did not drive them out completely like they were supposed to. They made them slaves. Okay, they were like, why are we going to wipe them all out? We can make them serve us, and we're powerful enough now that they're going to have to serve us. This sounds pretty good. All the generations also were gathered to their fathers. That generation died, Okay. There arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. By the way, every time you see in Scripture the, the words the Lord in small caps like that, or caps, um, it actually is God's personal name, Yahweh. So I typically will use that just so you're not confused as to what we're doing here. So um, they didn't know Yahweh. They didn't know what he had done. And so this happens right very next verse. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals, and they forsook Yahweh, 
the God of their fathers, who have brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked Yahweh to anger. They broke this covenantal relationship they had with God. They had a deal with God. And God was very, very clear on what it would be like if they kept that deal. And he was very, very clear on what it would be like if they didn't keep that deal. And so they didn't keep the deal. And so things got really bad. That was the part of the deal. God's like, things are going to get really, really bad for you if you do not keep the covenant. And they get so bad that finally the Israelites are like, help us, Yahweh, save us. It's too bad. And Yahweh, being gracious as he is, sends what we call a judge, which is just a local hero to address the problem. That judge addresses the problem, crisis is averted, and then guess what they do? They again do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. It's like right after that, if you read Judges, it reads that way. Like, like Christ is averted, and then another generation, and they did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And then, they, then it, it just follows the cycle. Things get really, really, really bad. Israel it cries out to Yahweh, help us, we're in trouble. Yahweh sends a judge, fixes the problem. Christ is averted. Then Israel does what's evil in the sight of the Lord again. And we look, I don't know if you look at that, I just go, you're so dumb. Why do you do this? And then I look at my own life and I go, I'm so dumb. Why do I do this? Right? So he's setting this up as really a bad time. Things are not good. There was violence everywhere. There was worship of foreign gods everywhere. There was unchecked lawlessness everywhere. There was licentiousness everywhere. There was civil war at times. And at times, when you look at it, if you didn't know the end of the story, you would think, Israel's got to be done. Israel's going to go the way of every other nation and just fall off the face of the planet. It is so bad, they're, they're toast. But every time, God comes through. So this is the time in which, in which the, the setting of Ruth is. And during one of those bad times, when Israel was, was disobedient. And we don't know what the time frame of this is, which bad time this was, but there was a famine. If you want to go back out there, Jan, just keep clicking. Um, there was a famine, which means there was not enough food. And what do you get when there's not enough food? What happens in uh, African countries when they don't get enough food in our current world? Starvation. That's what happens. This is not good. People are dying from not having food. That's how bad it is. And, and so, which completely fits with the time of the judges, right? Things are bad. It represents God's judgment. And the irony is this. Look at what it says. And a certain man, oh wait, sorry, go back, go back, go back, sorry. Um, and a certain man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. Now again, the original readers of this would think there's a lot of irony there. For two reasons. One, this family was from Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. And there was no bread, right? The reason why it was called the house of bread is that it was a place that was rich, had rich farmland, that there was wheat and barley everywhere when there wasn't a family, famine going on. And, and so there's some irony there. Like, like this place of, of, of bread can't even feed its own people, Right? And so this, this man goes and he takes his family and he sojourns, which means he goes to a foreign land, and this foreign land is 
Moab. Now we can, we can see the map here, okay? They're in Bethlehem. They go across the Dead Sea to Moab. They actually probably went around the Dead Sea, but to Moab, okay? And um, this is also ironic because the Israelites hated Moab. And Moab, they looked at Moab with disgust. Moab was one of the, um, one of the peoples that had descended from um, Levi, who, you know, Abraham and Levi. Levi has two daughters, and they trick their dad into sleeping with them, and they have kids, right? Incest. And one of those kids ends up birthing the whole nation of Moab. So this is like an incestuous tribe, right? So I'm, I'm an Israelite. I'm coming from the pure people of Israel, and I got to go because I'm starving to this incestuous people of Moab. Wow. Must have been really desperate. And it was. Because he would have had to be very desperate to do what he did. But he does. So then it goes on. It says, then Elimelech, um, oh, the name of the man was Elimelech. Sorry, I, I skipped down here. Uh, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they enter the land of Moab and remain there. So they live there. The man's name is Elimelech. Okay, we're filling in some of the details now. Wife is Naomi. Boys, Malon and Chilion. They are Ephrathites, which were, was a group of people that lived in the tribe of Judah, kind of a smaller group of, of Judahites. Um, and they lived around Bethlehem, which we already know. So this good old boy from, uh, from, from Judah, from Bethlehem, leaves to Moab with his family, and um, then, if things couldn't get worse, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with their two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. If things couldn't get any worse, right, this is like circling the drain. This is like spiraling down. If things couldn't get any worse, now Naomi's husband, Elimelech, the guy who brought them there, he dies. Now, not only is this obviously devastating to, to Naomi personally, right, she's lost her husband, that's, that's an amazing amount of, of loss and grief. But on top of that, in the time that they lived, to be a widow was really, really hard. Especially if you were an older widow, which she was. Because she was likely not to marry again. And in that time, in that place, it was really, really difficult. Her, her saving grace in this situation is that within this famine and this exile and this grief and this loneliness and this being a foreigner in Moab, she has two sons. Ah, thank goodness. She has two sons. She's not destitute. And those sons marry Moabite Tesses, Moabite women. And their names are Orpah and Ruth. Now, again, there's a little bit of irony here, right? Moabites, despised by the Israelites. Not the best situation, but a better situation than being without the boys. So here's the family tree, and we lose Elimelech. 
done. Okay? Still got Malan and Chilean. All right. Verse 5. Then both Malan and Chilean also died. And the woman, the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Not only did she lose her husband... For 10 years, they lived together. The sons, the new daughter-in-laws, they lived together. Things were, were, were stable. And now she loses her two sons. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what, what that would be like just personally to lose them? Like, I don't have two sons, but I, but I can't even fathom losing Elaine Clark. Like, I can't even wrap my mind around what that would be like. I can't even scratch the surface on what that would be like. And she loses these guys. Not only is that loss and that grief there, but now what we have here are three widows. You remember I said being a widow is not good in this time. Now we have three widows. No children that might grow up you know, no boys that are like, maybe there's a boy that's 12 that grows up and now can support his family once he st- starts getting a trade or something, right? Like there's some hope, but there's no hope. There's no kids. There's no grandkids. And in this time with no husband, there's no real possibilities for income for these women. There's little physical and legal protection in most areas for these women. Because of Naomi's age, like we talked about, there's, there's no, going to be no future children for her. It's not like she's going to produce more boys. And, and because, if you think about it, they had already been living 10 years here. You've got Ruth and Orpah that had husbands that were living for 10 years. They don't have grandkids. They don't have kids. What does that possibly mean? What would they have thought? We're barren too. Terrible state. Widows and orphans are, were the most vulnerable in society at this time. In fact, they're talked a lot in ancient literature, in the Bible and other ancient documents. They're talked about a lot because they were the most vulnerable. They were the most exploited. There was no social safety net in this time. There were no food stamps or housing credits or anything like that. There was nothing for them. So I don't even know that we can truly understand this, right? Because I think for us, we go, even if this, this happened to us, it would be terrible. It would be devastating. But we would focus more on the loss, like the, the, the loss of that relationship. We wouldn't be thinking, oh, my life is over. Like, I'm destitute, right? It's not the way it works for us. It is the way it worked for them. They were facing destitution. They'd really lost everything. Which, if you want to fill uh, the point out in your handout, there's a little, little square there every so often. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth lose everything. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth lose everything. It's gone. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place she was with her daughters-in-law and her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
So Naomi decides it's time to head back to Judah. And the reason for that is in this cycle of how the judges worked, right? God's judgment had fallen on them. Things were bad. The famine was not good, and that's why they had left. But now th- there was this turn, which, which was that cycle, right, in Judges. Now, it, now Yahweh was coming through with graciousness toward them in averting uh, Judah from this famine. And, and Naomi had heard this. So let's go back. Let's go back home, or I'm going to go back home and um, go because there's now food there. At least I won't be a foreigner. I'll be a widow, but I'll be a widow in Israel, which was definitely better than being a widow in Moab. And so I'm going to go back and do this. So she departed. She left, and her daughters, daughters-in-law are, are with her. Verse 8, it says, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to, your, to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with dealt with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant you that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. This is graciousness on Naomi's part, because she's she's looking at these two younger widows who, unlike herself, she's not going to remarry. That's just not happening. That just didn't happen in their culture. Even if there was a a widower in, in her time, he would not marry her. He would marry someone 20 years younger than her, right, who is childbearing who, or who could childbear children. Um, so, so, yeah, she, she was off the market, right? But these younger girls were on the market. There, there might be guys who marrying was a possibility for them. And, and them having kids was a possibility for them. So she's, she's like, go back to your, your families because once they – the way it worked back then is, is these – daughters-in-law, would actually attach themselves to their new family, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that they would never see their old family, but it, def- it definitely was they were a part of their husband's family more at this point, right? So she's like, go back now. You don't have this connection anymore. Go back. Be with your, your family and get married. Have kids. Have a great life. In fact, um, this word that is, is used here, um, that you may uh, find rest, that grant that you may find rest is actually a, 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 a bigger word than rest. It's, it's kind of wholeness, completeness. F- find a fulfilled life for yourself with a new husband. And these, these ladies say this. They said to her, no, but we will surely return with you and your people. You can just get a sense of how much they love their mother-in-law, Right? They're like, no, I, I want to stay with you. I want to be with you. So they argue for a second. But Naomi says, return, my daughters. One more click there, Jan. Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I say I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons... Would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. You hear at least her perspective on her circumstances, right? Yahweh is mad at me. Yahweh has hurt me. Yahweh is doing bad things to me. 
But he's not doing bad things to you girls. You girls go. Get away from me, right? I'm the problem. I'm the cancer here. I'm not going to have any kids. I'm definitely not going to get married. But let's say hypothetically I get married and I got babies in my womb tonight. You're going to wait for them to get old enough to marry you? No. Then you're going to be beyond childbearing age. That's not happening. It's ridiculous. Go. Leave me. It's the logical thing to do. And by the way, in this time, in this place, it was really the only choice. They really should have gone back, both of them. It was by far the most sensible choice. But they're arguing with her about it. Verse 14 says, and they lifted up their voices and wept again. They know the reality of the fact that this relationship is, is ending. They're, they're never going to see Naomi again. And obviously there's a close-knit relationship there. They're weeping. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law as a goodbye kiss. Goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Can you picture this? She's holding on to her. You're going, no, no, no. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. I'm holding on. You can't push me away. You can't send me away. And she says this. Uh, Naomi says this, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. It's the only thing that makes sense, Ruth. Go. But Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. This is heavy what she's saying here. Because she's actually making a covenant here. She's actually committing her life to Ruth. It doesn't matter where you go, I'm going to go. I don't even know where you're going. I've never been where you're going, but I'm going where you're going. I, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. And in fact, not only am I going with you right now, but I'm going to be, become a part, a part of your people. I've never met your people, but your people are going to be my people. And your God, I don't know much about this Yahweh guy, but hey, you know what? What I do know, he's my God too. And that's going to be true not only today, but tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. And no matter what, where your life takes you, which so far, Naomi doesn't have a great track record of where her life has taken her, right? It's like wherever your life takes you, I'm never going to leave you. And I'll actually die where you die. And I'll be buried where you're buried. And if I don't, May your God strike me down, is what she's saying here. May, him, may he strike me down the moment I break this commitment to you. It's heavy. This is the lowest point of Naomi's life. Because you think about it from her perspective, not only has she lost her husband, not only has she, she lost both of her sons, but now she's choosing willingly for the good of the girls to lose her daughter's. And in that moment, Ruth shows really something that Israel had not shown Yahweh. 
which is kind of the contrast here, the irony here, is Israel was not loyal to Yahweh. Israel was not committed to Yahweh. We see that over and over and over again. They, they were not committed at all. And now you see this girl, this Moabite girl, demonstrating loyal love for her mom, her mother-in-law. In fact, there's a word that occurs a number of times, and there's an implied sense of this a number of times throughout Ruth, which is the Hebrew word, word hesed, which I love that word. And in fact, the other uh, Hebrew-knowing guy in the room loves, that's your favorite word too, right? Uh, yeah, I, I just love it. I love it. It's, it's so complex. Um, but it's essentially love, but a love that's, that's based on a, a commitment, a loyal commitment to the person. This is what God was calling from his people, for, for them to love him in a loyal way, a committed way, and they were showing themselves not to be that way. But God's loyal love was consistent and unending. And this young girl from Moab, this incestuous people, is demonstrating what Israel was not at this time. She wasn't going to budge. Point on your handout if you want to fill it in. Is Ruth demonstrates an immense amount of loyalty and love for Naomi by committing to stay with her for her life regardless of the consequences. Ruth demonstrates an immense amount of loyalty and love for Naomi by committing to stay with her for life regardless of the consequences. And then our first chapter here um, ends on a little bit of a sour note. It says this, So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, back home. And when, when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Like, they recognized her, right? But it's, it's something's a little different, right? Last time they had seen her, it was her and her husband and her two sons. And now it's just Naomi coming back. The whole area is like, what's going on? It's just Naomi. And she says this to them. Don't call me Naomi. Stop using that name for me. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has de dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why do you call me, Na me Naomi, since Yahweh has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? You hear her bitterness? In fact, uh, what, what she wants them to call her is bitter. That's what Mara means. Just call me bitter from now on, because I'm bitter. And you can hear this deep bitterness in her. The Almighty, the, the, the master of the universe, has dealt with me bitterly. He's wrong. She's calling him out. He's, he's, he's totally treated me unfairly. Absolutely treated me unfairly. I went out full. Yeah, you guys saw me with my husband and boys. Yeah, that was good. Life was good. And Yahweh has brought me back empty. And nothing. And it's all his fault. Yahweh has spoken against me, and I, what can I do? He's almighty, I'm weak. Okay, fine. Step on me. I'm a bug, God. Well, you already have stepped on me. You stepped on my husband, stepped on my boys. 
I can relate in some ways. Maybe you can relate in some ways to her sentiment here. I remember kind of a, when I look back at it, kind of a breakthrough moment in my life was when I realized I could yell at God. I remember driving back uh, from, from work to home uh, in a van that I had, and like life was just not good. <laughs> Things were not going the way I wanted them to be going, and I was mad. And I'd been reading recently of, uh, of how David kind of spoke to God in a lot of the Psalms, and, and I just got to a point where I was like, I just yelled. I was just mad. I was just telling God all the stuff that I already thought in my heart. Like, th- this was real for me, but I was like, I can't say that. He's God. But God knew what was going on with me, right? I needed to yell at him. I needed to tell him how wrong he was for treating me the way he was and not doing the things that he needed to be doing in my life. Naomi is obviously not pulling any punches here. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I love this is where, where chapter, I love that this is where chapter one ends, because it's kind of like um, an episode in a show. You know, like, like they have all the like, storyline of the show, and then at the very end, they kind of leave it with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Like you get a little bit intrigued. Yeah, this is one of those moments. They're back. Both Naomi and Ruth in Bethlehem. And it's the beginning of the barley harvest. That's going to mean something in next week's episode. The point on your hand, if you want to put it in, is Naomi is extremely bitter toward Yahweh over the loss of her family. Naomi is extremely bitter toward Yahweh over the loss of her family. And I think why we can intellectually go, oh, you shouldn't do that, that Naomi, I think emotionally we can go, yeah, I kind of understand what that, why you would be bitter. Ruth and Naomi were women who had neither power nor position. Both were widows, and one was a foreigner. Although their circumstances were dire and they had little hope for the future, this is in fact not the end of the story, but the beginning. God eventually uses the events of their lives to alter the course of all humanity. Let me pray for us. Lord, we um, are thankful for this story. It's just um, wonderful to be able to look at it, to be able to to understand it, to, to, um, to get the first part of the story. There's a lot of um, hurt and sadness that is in this. Um, but um, we know there's, there's hope. We know there's a turning of the story. And we know that you're at the, at the core of that, at the center of that. And so we're just thankful that you, um, that you, you gave us this. Uh, pray that you would just be honored as we continue to work through this uh, in the month of December. Pray this on your name.